It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday up and down the West Coast. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton along with my co-host John Riley, and we welcome you to our weekly podcast. John, clear the deck. We have an awful lot of topics on the table to talk about on a Thursday. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. We got we got World Cup. We've got baseball free agency. We have college football. I mean, let, let's go right where I think we need to start with is Team USA and what's happening in Qatar. Team USA has moved to the knockout round. This coming in the aftermath, John, of a spectacular individual performance, the courage of that guy, Christian Pulisic, the star. Captain America, he's called. He won the World Cup game for Team USA. His defender, Walker Zimmerman, preserved the victory in an unbelievably emotional win, politically charged atmosphere against Iran. Pulisic crashed his way to the goal mouth at the 38-minute mark, flicked his foot, deflected a ball into the net as he collided head-on with the Iranian goalkeeper. He's got a bruised pelvic. He has not worked out Tuesday, Wednesday, nor Thursday. There will be a walkthrough on Friday. He says he will play Saturday morning at 7 a.m. How long he holds up remains to be seen. Whether he's close to 100% proficiency remains to be seen, too. Couple of off-the-top-of-my-head items. It is so much fun to see that guy develop into a superstar. He's a global superstar. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether Chelsea wants to play him full-time or not, he's become a global superstar. John, we remember him struggling so badly as such a young 21-year-old trying to help Team USA qualify for the last World Cup did not. To see him take that next step forward, unbelievable. Second piece of the argument, they started this World Cup playoff series with one guy with experience, DeAndre Yellen, and he's not gotten on the field, but he's the only veteran that was on the roster. As we sit here going towards Saturday, we got all 25 guys on the roster are now tested World Cup veterans. The, the ties with Wales, the ties with England, and then the very emotional win against Iran. This team has grown up right before our eyes. And John, to me, as they get ready to play the Netherlands, they're a really dangerous side. All right, you sat, you watched, you know what I think about what Team USA has become and what Captain America has brought to the forefront. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it was a spectacular game. I think the the whole second half, I was on the edge of my seat, you know, especially as Pulisic was pulled out to start the second half. And then as the second half progressed, they pulled out some of their uh, attackers and went to more of a defensive uh, configuration. And as a result, you know, Iran had the ball like on our side of the court a lot. And so, you know, every play was really close. But yeah, what a what a great victory for the team. I mean, again, there's so many levels to this, right? There's from a from a soccer perspective, a great move for Team USA who didn't qualify last time. Now is in knockout round in the brackets, and yeah, Netherlands is going to be tough. Team Orange. Um, but yeah, all the the political stuff, the backdrop, which we won't get into, but it just added a lot more intrigue to how this whole thing played out. So yeah, you you go USA. 
Uh, side sidebar comment: We talk about the pressure that Pulisic and Team USA was under. How about the pressure the Iranian players were under? The whole flag controversy, the way the world has looked at Iran for how it's treated women, the protests that were swirling around, uh, the ugliness of what I thought was one of the nastiest press conferences I've ever seen, where the international journalist went after Team USA's players and its coach. Why are you playing that side, Iran, when they do what they do to their people who live back home? Then the threats from the Iranian government after the Iranian players refused to sing the national anthem at midfield before the second game. And it just built and built and built. And then the insinuations that if you don't tow the rope, you players from Iran, your families are going to be in danger. It was horrific. So we talk about the pressure the Pulisic and Team America had. How about the pressure that was on Iran inside? Yeah. I mean, it was incredible because these guys were are, are tremendous athletes, just like the American athletes are. They don't want to get involved in the political mess, but they're kind of in the mixing pot of the whole thing. And it was interesting. You're right. They didn't sing the national anthem game one. Game two, they kind of mumbled it along because they were probably getting pressure. But it was interesting. If you look in the stands, you see the Iranian fans cheering on their team. You see women cheering on their team that – that appear to be completely free, you know, just like any American woman would be. And so that was encouraging. But, God, it's just so much about, you know, America, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And you just like to see the whole world kind of, you know, grab grab onto that ideal. And Iran, just they have some work to do. I will say this, uh, that win against Iran was emotionally charged and Captain America won the game. But I'll tell you what, his defender, Walker Zimmerman, who committed the really bad penalty that led to the Wales penalty kick that tied the first game. Walker Zimmerman cleared a ball and in front of an open net after goalkeeper Matt Turner had fallen. Mm. Otherwise, that ball's in the net and the whole game changes. He also, in the waning nine minutes of injury time, headed out of the box five different crossing passes when Iran was just yeah. pressuring. I remember pushing. that. It was tremendous. And yet that big defender, that fullback, went up and deflected five crossing passes to prevent Iran from getting close-up shots on Matt Turner. And, and collectively, it, it was a great team win because a lot of other guys played well. On to the Netherlands, or as they call them, Le Orange. Netherlands is not what they've been in the past. They do have good players. They have not played very aggressively. They've been rather passive. There's a lot of criticism back in, in Holland about how the World Cup game plan went. They got there through group play, but they don't seem to scare anybody. Now, I'm just wondering, are they laying in the weeds here? Are they are they just wanted to get through without showing all their wares and their style? So Team USA, you know, what are the how are they going to defend these guys? What video have they looked at to prepare? And do they have a real good hands-on approach to who the Orange really are? Yeah, it's it's going to be a great game Saturday morning. We've got to wake up bright and early for that one. But uh, just to see Team Netherlands, you know, they, they've always been consistently in bracket play. I can't recall how, how long it's been since they've made it to a final or even to the semifinals. But they're always a consistently solid program. So, yeah, Team USA has their work cut out for them. They're a two seed going up against a one seed in the bracket. 
Americans are going to be the underdog, but we'll be cheering along. We're going to see something we've never seen in World Cup play before. Uh, the Dutch have a six foot eight goalkeeper, Andres Nuppert. Wow. Six foot eight, really athletic and long reach. Mm-hmm. Big challenge there. They've got themselves a young developing forward who's lightning quick. His name is Cody Gapko. But the media, the European media, the Dutch media, have called them team dull and says it's like watching walking football. Very <laughs> critical about right. the style. Team USA, the Netherlands, a.k.a. Holland, the Dutch. It'll be a fun game. And now it's the knockout round, 7 a.m. Pacific time on Saturday. Where do you want to go next? Okay, well, we got to go to college football. I mean, it's just been a great couple of weekends here during rivalry week. So let's talk Michigan-Ohio State. Who could have seen this coming? Michigan drops bombs on Ohio State all day long. Who could have seen this coming? J.J. McCarthy was just a pedestrian quarterback who threw for some yards at Michigan and then hand off to the plethora of running backs that the U of M has. Instead, Ohio State, in a bit of a surprise, committed their defense. They committed their front seven to stuff the run. And they trusted, they thought they could trust their secondary in single-man coverage to hold up. Well, what happened? J.J. McCarthy avoided the pass rush from the seven-man front, continually stepped up in the pocket. He threw three deep touchdown passes that killed Ohio State. And then while the Buckeyes were reeling, then they unleashed Donovan Edwards, uh, the backup running back, and he busted off runs of 75 and 85 yards. And C.J. Stroud just really struggled would make anything happen. His receivers, for the most part, disappeared on him. Now, the Buckeyes, of course, had injury problems, too, at running back. They were down their one and their two guy. And at the end at the end of the day, Michigan beat him for the second time in a row and beat him terribly in posting that victory uh, to, to win the Big Ten, to, to move themselves uh, further up the board into the playoffs and essentially knock Ohio State out of the playoff race, at least at this state. Um, Jim Harbaugh has now beaten him two in a row, and Ryan Day is is like John Cooper in Columbus. John Cooper, former Buckeyes head coach, who was horrible against Michigan. Ryan Day is 0-2 against the Mason Blue. Uh, not easy times there. So now we wait to see what happens in championship conference play on Saturday Uh, to see if there are any upsets. Michigan, obviously, is going to play in the Big Ten title game. Ohio State's regular season is done. We find out now where they go to play. Your reaction when you see what the guys from up north did to the guys down south? Well, I mean, that's a brutal rivalry, right? I mean, you're wearing your Ohio U jersey right now. So uh, I was happy to see Jim Harbaugh have a victory because he had been getting pushed around, knocked around. Ohio State is kind of like Alabama North. You know, they're one of the dominant teams. So it was nice to see them get blown out in the horseshoe, you know, which was it's that's a big victory for Michigan and those guys, Um, especially after they lost Hutchinson from last year and their team had to be reconfigured. So I'm all in on, on, on Team Blue here. I mean, good for the Michigan Wolverines. Hail to the victors because Michigan got it done. Next topic on the table. Um, yeah, we got to stay in the world of college football. I mean, the playoffs are getting set here, Lee. I mean, what's your take on how the, this is going to shape up? Well, we got uh, we got the championship conference playoffs this weekend. 
Georgia has been number one for a long period of time. They're going to play upstart LSU in the SEC title game. I don't think LSU has a prayer. And their quarterback, Jaden Daniels, the Arizona State transfer, has an ankle injury. I think Georgia romps. It's interesting. Georgia's not a dominant offensive team. Pretty good quarterback, manages the game, Stetson Bennett. He doesn't throw for 420 yards, but he's always in the 250 range, and he has two to three touchdowns, and they run the ball and they play defense, and they play defense, and the dogs play more defense. They're really, really good. Mm -hmm. So I think Georgia's going to stay number one, and I think they win the SEC playoff game. Uh, Atlantic Coast Conference, these are for guys that didn't make it. Uh, Clemson's had a really bad second half of the season. They're going to play North Carolina in the ACC championship game. The big issue in Clemson is their California quarterback has failed them. They've always had great quarterbacks that make things happen down the field. Has not happened with DJ Ugalili. Uh, that's a big disappointment at Clemson. They're, if they're going to become a national power upper echelon, we're going to have to solve the quarterbacking problem next year. So that's in the ACC. Uh, you've got the Big 12. Upstart TCU. What a job Sonny Dykes has done. Got a transfer quarterback, Max Dugan, who's come off an injury-filled career. Boy, he's playing really well. And lost and all that, the guys who wear purple on defense, they beat your brains out. TCU is a really good team. Now, they're going to play Kansas State. That won't be an easy day. K-State's got a 50-year quarterback who transferred from Nebraska, Adrian Martinez. They don't have any Mm -hmm. sexy names, any national names you'd recognize outside of the quarterback. And K-State has just gotten progressively better, better, and better as they've played the back half of the schedule. Can they beat TCU? Can they beat TCU's defense? I don't think so, but I think that game's going to be closer uh, than anybody realizes. Uh, you got Michigan-Purdue. Uh, bad news for Michigan, uh, Blake Corum, knee surgery this week. Mm. Star running back, 1,400-yard running back, gone. Mm. But they obviously are two or three deep behind him. But that's a tough blow. Purdue's had a nice season, but Purdue is not on the same level of Michigan. And I don't think, in all honesty, Harbaugh's going to let his guys have any type of a letdown at this point in the season. So that's who they are. And I'll get to the Pac-12. USC-Utah. I think it's tough to beat a team a second time in a single season. I think now Southern Cal knows everything about the Utes there is. Last time when Utah beat them in Salt Lake City, Utes ran the ball. Cam Rising managed the game, did not turn it over. But Caleb Williams wasn't doing what Caleb Williams is doing now at quarterback for Southern Cal. Uh, He's got three wide receivers, and they're all healthy right now. He's got number two running back that might be equal to Travis Best, whom they lost a a week ago with a broken leg. So I, I think USC in the rematch figures these guys out. And there's no doubt that Southern Cal can score from any part of the field. So those those are the conference championship games. Do you see any upsets on the horizon? Yeah, that that's the question here is which of these big t- time teams are going to get knocked off? I mean, USC appears to be on the rise right now. Michigan is on the rise. Um, Georgia has been in the driver's seat. So you kind of wonder about TCU. You know, they're the ones that kind of just squeaked by a couple of weeks ago. They're the ones that are, that are kind of the surprise team that are in the top four. So maybe you would suspect that that, that tough defense, maybe they're going to falter a bit. But it is interesting, too, that in Big 12, I mean, Oklahoma is not involved at all this year. It's Kansas State for the championship. And isn't it funny, too, how 
like in a lot of uh, universities and their state counterparts, one school's good at basketball, one school's good at football. So in Kansas, yeah, Kansas State is sometimes sneaky good in football. So they could be the team to knock off the Horned Frogs. It'll be interesting. Now, in addition to the games, we got the bowl picture and a lot of diverse stories developing with the bowls. Where do you want to go? Okay, well, I mean, the what what's happening with – all the bowl games, yeah, they're, they're, we're talking about maybe getting the Rose Bowl involved. We're talking about the Holiday Bowl. Let's talk a little bit about the Rose Bowl first because the playoff is going to be completely reconfigured. They have now reached agreement with the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl was holding out. They wanted a separate set of rules for to protect the integrity and the history of their bowl game. That's gone by the boards. The College Football Playoff Committee, in negotiations with all the other bowl games, got everybody in lockstep with how this thing is going to be structured when they expand it to 12 teams. Rose Bowl stood on the side and said, no, not us. Well, the College Football Playoff Committee came back to the Rose Bowl people, John, and they told them, if you do not agree to be in the rotation for all these other bowls— if you don't agree that we have the right to change the starting time of your Rose Bowl game and even maybe change the day, you won't be part of this. Rose Bowl did not want to host a first or second round game. All they wanted to be the Rose Bowl semifinal championship game. College football committee said, no, can't do that. You're going to operate under the same set of rules that the Orange Bowl and the Fiesta Bowl and all the other ones will. Well, they gave him a deadline of Wednesday night, and Wednesday night, the Rose Bowl conceded. We'll join the college football playoff structure. If you pull the game out of January 1st at 2 p.m., we understand. But we think we're big enough that we should be a big-time player to host the semifinals or the finals. So the Rose Bowl, to a degree, caved in. They're going to still get good games, but so will all the other bowls. So we're going to 12-team playoff, John, effective January of 2024. So this will be the final year of the bowl structure in 2023 that we have. New bowls will kick in in 2024. There'll be 12 teams. And there's a huge argument. Do we really want to have the back end? But there's so much money out there. That's why they're doing 12. Because part of the deal with the 12 is, oh, yeah, maybe we'll take a ranked Mid-American Conference team or a Mountain West Conference team and they could play. But at the end of the day, do you really want the champion of the Mid-American Conference to play Georgia in a first-round game? What kind of football is that going to be? Do you realistically think Boise State or San Diego State or Fresno State would have any prayer at all against Michigan in a first-round game. So there's still a huge arguing point, but there's so much money out there. That's why they're pushing forward. So historically, you and I like loyalty and tradition and all that razzmatazz. Mm -hmm. Well, that's gone by the boards where the Rose Bowls finally had to change its mind. I love this. I mean, I love expanding the playoff. Because remember in the beginning, the college playoff was just one versus two. And the third team had a legit point that they could say they were number two. So now you're expanding it. You're getting more people involved. It's starting to be a little bit like the like March Madness, moving in that direction. And yeah, I mean, if, if San Diego State goes up against Georgia, hypothetically, it's going to be a lopsided match. But, you know, th- this is when you see underdogs rise up and some crazy things happen, and it could be kind of fun. And the, the each of those bowls will still be able to preserve their business interests because they're going to have people coming into town. I mean, the Rose Bowl 
I mean, people come here for the parade. They come here to escape the East Coast during that time. They're still going to do well attendance-wise. Um, and it just seems like a natural fit that you take a lot of those traditional bowls, you put them as quarterfinal games, semifinal games, you have a bit of a rotation. The Rose Bowl is the granddaddy of them all, but the world has shifted. The world has changed. It surely has. Let's go from that bowl game in Pasadena to our bowl game here. Yeah, Petco Park, hosting football here, the Holiday Bowl. I mean, this is a chance we can see one of the Mountain West teams. And uh, where is it going to be? Oh, it's Pac-12 and ACC this time. It used to be the Mountain West a long time. It used to be back in the day, but Mm -hmm. things have changed. However, Holiday Bowl, Petco Park, December 28th, I believe it is. That's going to be fun. Here's the intriguing part of the conversation. Pac-12, who do we take from the Pac-12? Oregon has fallen off the top. The Oregon Ducks, a really good team, could be a candidate to come here. Washington Huskies, led by their wild transfer quarterback Michael Penix, they could be a team to come here at 10-2. and two. Or Oregon State, which somehow, someway beat Oregon in the Civil War last week, could be a representative. They've never been here before. They're going to get the Holiday Bowl. Our football fans in this town are going to get a really good matchup. Now, ACC, we're not going to get Clemson. That's too big. They're going to be in one of the Deep South Bowls. I don't know that we're going to get North Carolina. How would Notre Dame look out here? You know, Notre Dame plays an interlocking schedule and is viewed as an ACC team. Would you like to have... Notre Dame out here against a Pac-12 team. Mm -hmm. Think a few fans wearing green and gold would come from South Bend, Chicago, and everywhere in the Midwest. I I don't know if it's a long shot, but it's out there, and it it could possibly happen. I think it's great. I mean, I remember back in the day, the Holiday Bowl used to be the best bowl game that wasn't a New Year's Day bowl. Throw the football, throw the football, throw the football. It was unbelievably entertaining. And then, you know, the college landscape changed and it became kind of a minor bowl. But now they have a chance to kind of move back near the front of the line. Uh, This is going to be a terrific opportunity. And yeah, that Penix kid, when he was at Indiana, he was unbelievable. He was the program. Uh, But he was so injury prone and he had trouble. He was shaky. Um, I'm really happy he showed up in Washington to revive the Huskies. So yeah, we're going to get a good team down here. It's going to be a great holiday week. And it's going to be a new venue. And we're going drinking in the Gasland Quarter, too. It'll be great. So we'll find out on December 4th uh, the Holiday Bowl matchups. One other note, college football. Do you want to talk about the coaching carousel? Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. Lots of people moving around. Neon Dion is in the news primetime. I mean, let's let's break it down. Well, let's start with the, the, the coaching situations that are still open. At one point, there were seven true Division I jobs that were available. Now we got two coaching jobs left. Colorado. And Stanford. Colorado was one of the first ones to fire their coach, Carl Durrell. They've had the entire football season to figure out what they want to do. Well, for some reason, whether it came from those people in Boulder or it came from a push from Deion Sanders' agent, he's a finalist and is interviewed and is negotiating for the job. I don't understand why it's taken so long. Colorado is, is one of the last ones to make a move on a head coach. Virtually all the other openings have been filled. So that's a bit of a surprise. But I'll say this. He will be a magnet that will attract recruits. He is 26-5 and five at Jackson State, where there is no money and there is not a lot of recent tradition 
even though the the historically black universities and college do have great football tradition back in the day, the Eddie Robinson era, if Neon Dion shows up at, at CU, he's going to be a difference maker and difference maker quickly. But I think he has to make the decision quickly because recruiting time is ticking away. I mean, the national signing date is just a couple of weeks out. So that bears watching. The other opening is it came as a surprise. But the program sadly looked like it got away from David Shaw, and he resigned within hours after the completion of another disappointing Stanford season. He did such a great job for such a long time. But the last couple of years, he went 3-9, and 3-9, and nine, wasn't competitive. And there's a, there's a sidebar story there at Stanford, John, is that they don't have the ability to import large numbers of transfers yet. It's a phenomenal academic institution. They do not have a competitive NIL scholarship program that everybody else in the world seems to have. And David Shaw in his farewell press conference just said it was time. I think he's burned out. He, he's been hurt by some of the entrance requirement rules at that, that, that great university. He's been hurt by NFL underclassmen defections have gone to the league. That's hurt him too. Uh, but he, as his farewell press statement said, we have to address the transfer portal and our ability to compete in that, and we have to address the NIL. And he says that'll come down road. But hell of a guy. He did a great, great job. You know, he replaced Harbaugh. They had been down for an extended period of time when Jim went to the NFL. I, I, I'll be fascinated to see who they wind up with. Uh, but all the other coaching vacancies have been filled. Uh, I'll just go through the list real quick if I if I can find it here in my note sheet. Uh, amongst the coaches who got hired, Wisconsin hired Luke Fickell from Cincinnati. I always thought he was going to wind up back in, uh, with a Big Ten job because he came from Big Ten roots. He decided to leave UC. What a great job he did at a group of five conference to make him big time. Uh, Arizona State uh, hired Ken Dillingham. Ken is a former offensive coordinator at the University of Oregon, legendary high school coach in the state of Arizona. So he'll hit the floor running because he's got an awful lot of contacts, a lot of other places. Uh, Nebraska reached out differently and did not bring a former Cohen Husker back. They went out and they got Matt Rule, the former Baylor coach who did great things uh, in the Big 12 with the Baylor Bears, but then faltered terribly in the National Football League. And they gave him an eight-year contract to take over there. Uh, And Auburn in a bit of a controversial move after being turned down by people, Auburn hired uh, Hugh Freeze, former head coach at Mississippi, did a great job at Ole Miss, but got caught up in NCAA violations, some junk off the field with women. He wound up going to Liberty University up in Virginia, put together two back-to-back seasons, has now been brought back. But there's a tacky track record there that somebody needs to pay attention to. And I don't, as desperate as Auburn is to compete with Alabama, huge question. So there we are. Those those are the marquee openings. Your thoughts on Neon Dion coming to Boulder? You think that'd be kind of cool? I mean, it's it's amazing how well he has done. Mm-hmm. I mean, but he's a winner. I mean, that that guy has was performed on the field. He's performed in baseball. Um, he He's he was a terrific as a as a studio host, you know, breaking down college football and NFL back in the day. And when he got that job at Jackson State, we were all kind of skeptical. You know, come on, prime time as the head coach. But the dude killed it. He did really, really well. And I've seen some of um, the videos of him talking to his team. I mean, he's a leader of men. 
in his own way, you know, being authentic Neon Dion. So I love this, that if he can move up the ranks, he's untraditional uh, compared to a lot of the old school coaches. But that's that thing gets really special. I think the other thing, it's an intangible thing, and not many people have paid attention to it. He took that job at Jackson State, and all those HBUC schools are dirt poor. Mm-hmm. They don't have big resources. He attracted corporate donations. Yeah. He and he himself gave part of a salary to fund the building of a weight room at Jackson State for all the athletic programs. Mm-hmm. Well, he arrived, and suddenly three other former NFL coaches took head coaching jobs at the HBUC schools. Um Tennessee State for one. Uh, So it's amazing his impact, not just on Jackson State and Mississippi, but what he's done for the black colleges in terms of getting more money funneled there. I I have a unique opinion that I think every African-American player or every every player in the NFL owes something to the Jackson States and the Gramblins and the Mississippi Valleys where Jerry Rice came from. Mm -hmm. I wish to heck NFL players would pool some money and make it available to all the Division One AA athletic programs of all the black schools. It would help those universities enormously, not mm-hmm. just in a football field, but in terms of running what they need to run academically. But uh, Neon Dion, he pressed the button, and he made a lot of things light up at Jackson State as well, the conference. So that'll be fun. Hey, before we continue on, uh, let's tell all of our live stream viewers about how they can subscribe to get access to our podcast and also how they can join us at the tail end of the podcast with our Fans Forum. Yeah, the Fans Forum segment, you can get involved. If you have a hot take, a question, a comment for Hacksaw, just type it in and Facebook or on YouTube. We'll see it here on the screen. We'll get you involved in the Fans Forum segment at the end of the Hacksaw's headlines. And please subscribe to the show. You can subscribe on YouTube, click on the subscribe button and that little bell. You'll get the alert when there's a new episode. Um, and also follow Hacksaw on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can subscribe at, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also check my website. It's very different. It's all written at leehacksawhamilton.com. On we go. NFL football. Let's start here as we start the second half of the show. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be good because we're going to be talking Chargers Raiders, you know, which is just going to be fantastic. And both these teams going through some interesting stretches. Uh, Both have really been battered by injuries. Chargers are, for the most part, starting to get healthy. Uh, Justin Herbert has carried this team. They're six and five. It has been a scuffle to get six and five. Raiders have been beset by youth injuries, and a lot of mistakes made in the John Gruden era that have really kind of set their defense way back. But the Raiders do have the leading rusher in the league in Josh Jacobs. He's a former star at Alabama, high number one pick, took him forever to figure out how to play at the National Football League level. He had an 86-yard touchdown run in overtime last week. He had 226 yards rushing. He's got over 1,300 yards rushing and nearly 1,500 all-purpose yards. So they got a heavy-duty running back. They got Devontae Adams. They got Derek Carr, who still makes plays down the field. And they got a young defense that's starting to get a little bit more competitive. They're going to face Justin Herbert, but the Chargers are still a little bit dinged up at wide receiver. Chargers don't run the football at all. It's Justin Herbert, it's Austin Eckler, a little bit of Keenan Allen, and the Chargers can't stop the run. John, they are giving up 5.53 yards per carry, 
which is the worst NFL run defense statistic dating back to the year 2000. And they're going to line up, and that's Josh Jacobs who's coming at you. So what do you think in Las Vegas on Sunday? Uh, it's going to be great. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great classic rivalry. You know, I, I grew up in the, as a Niners and Raiders fan, and so you know when the Chargers left San Diego, I'm kind of moving my allegiances to those teams. So um, it, I, it was interesting with Josh Jacobs because – I noticed, you know, this season he was actually performing really well. And I kept thinking, wait a minute, I remember that name. I remember he got drafted. But how many years ago was it that he came out of Alabama? This is his fifth year. He, with four years, he scuffled and struggled. A little bit about him. He had some injuries. A lot about their inefficiency at quarterback and the inefficiency in the offensive line. But, boy, he is such a different different player now. Uh, it, it, I think it's going to be a toss-up. Which Raider team shows up? That's the big question. But if they can run Josh Jacobs, and if the Bolt defense can't get off the field, uh-oh, then the Chargers would be in big trouble. And, of course, Josh McDaniels, the Raiders coach, is coaching to save his job because everybody around the country thinks – this guy might be a great offensive coordinator. He's not a great head coach. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be a fun game to watch. I mean, that defense is a sieve for the, the Chargers. I mean, what you said, 5.3 yards per carry. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, so both these teams, you know, what's the Raiders record? How many games have they won? Four like, and seven. Four and seven. But they've won two in a row. All right. Well, okay. So they're trending up. So I, anytime it's Chargers Raiders, it's always good. Yeah, I mean, that's old tradition. I don't think, I don't think the Holy Roller. I'm sorry, you're still upset about that, but <laughs> I don't think the Holy Roller or Ken Stabler or Al Davis. I don't think that's got anything to do with today. When I was doing talk show radio, Raider fans used to bombard my show, and they were just crazy. And I said, "That's just great. You went in the back of the garage and you found that old Super Bowl trophy. It's all dented from 25 years ago. Sorry." <laughs> That trophy doesn't mean anything for this Sunday's game. And right. I'll, I'll reinvoke that again. Chargers, Raiders, though, it's going to be a fun game. Justin Herbert, Josh Jacobs. On we go. Let's talk baseball. Baseball. I mean, yeah, Padres are in the news. Lots of free agent signings, potentially. I know that the Padres lost out on Abreu, and they're looking at a lot of really interesting names. Well, winter baseball meetings come here next Monday uh, for the next four days next week. Uh, the, I think there's, a, there's an issue here that nobody's talking or writing about at this point. I think that the Padres have kind of put a cap on A.J. Preller. They do not want to go up above the $233 million luxury tax threshold. That'll be the, that's the new base number because they've gone over the luxury tax twice already. If you do it a third time, the penalties you pay, it's like a 60% penalty, plus you lose draft picks, plus you lose a chunk of money out of your international signing pool if you go over the, the thing a third year. I don't think the Padres want to do that. Uh, in terms of where they are, I think they've found that the price tags these guys were asking, too high. You know, they, they thought they had a kick at the can at the White Sox first baseman, Jose Abreu. He wound up getting $20 million a year, $60 million total from Houston. Padres could not afford to pay him that guy, $20 million. They were in on A.J. Pollock. He wants a pay hike from where he was with the White Sox at 13. He wants to go to at least 15. I don't think they're going to do that. Um, for some reason, they believe they can be a player with a Red Sox free agent shortstop, Xander Bogarts. He's represented by Scott Boros. He's getting a lot of action from a lot of different people. I don't think he's coming here for $15 million. Uh, I think he's probably going to seek something north of 20. So I, I think the Padres are kind of running into a wall here that the marquee guys that they might like, 
I think are just a little bit out of their range because they had to spend $20 million to re-sign Nick Martinez and Robert Suarez. Doesn't mean they can't make other deals. Doesn't mean that there you know, might not be another trade. The hottest rumor out there involves Pirates outfielder Brian Reynolds. But Pittsburgh is shopping him. He's got two more years left, $6 million this coming season. I think it's $9 million the final season. They could afford him. But can they afford what Pittsburgh wants? I was told from Pittsburgh's point of view that they want Adrian Morion, starting pitcher. They want Luis Campusano, starting catcher, who would be a starting catcher in Pittsburgh. And they want maybe one or two other elite minor leaguers. Now, that's a pretty steep price to pay, but... Guy hit 27 home runs. Runnels hit 292. Got a good glove. Can play different positions. And you'd own him for two more years. So that's where we are with the Padres. What do you think is going to happen? And would would you pay that price to get Brian Runnels? That's a lot. I mean, I mean, there was a, a rumors about Brian Reynolds last year, yeah. uh, but the Pittsburgh, you know, wanted the mother load for the guy, and you know that makes sense from a financial perspective. But the farm system, which used to be the best in baseball, has been depleted so much. How many more, you know, uh, chips does it Preller have to play? I do appreciate and understand the whole notion of the of the salary cap. I mean, Seidler, I know, would probably write a check, but it, it is the, the penalties for the draft picks for the international signing that could decimate the team long term. So I get why they need to kind of operate under that barrier. Um, the, the other interesting part that you talked about was Xander Bogarts. The, the stories that I'm hearing is that he is buddies with Soto. And they have the same agent and they're trying to like work him to maybe come to San Diego. But imagine if he came here. I mean, the whole infield would be radically changed. Um, So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. And we haven't even discussed what this will be another arguing point after the winter baseball meetings. Somebody must decide where they're going to play Fernando Tatis. Now, granted, we're not not ready to go to Cactus League at this point in time. But that's where we are. The Padres keep an eye. It's going to be a very interesting week. They may have to do this via trade because I don't know that they can do much more in terms of big name uh, free agency. Let's go from there. Let's go to the Dodgers. The Dodgers created a $100 million space to go back into free agency. But by doing that... They have holes in lots of different places. They've yet to re-sign Kershaw, though I'm led to believe there will be a deal there. They have not moved on Justin Turner yet. They got rid of Cody Bellinger, so that cleared $18 million. We think that maybe in this coming week, there's going to be a decision on the status of the Trevor Bauer suspension and whether that frees up another $32 million that the Dodgers won't be on the books for for the suspended right-handed pitcher. But at the end of the day, the Dodgers have a lot of holes now. It's not not the same team at all. Trey Turner has gone at shortstop for, for sure. So the burning question then is what, what transpires? The Dodgers brought in Justin Verlander to meet with him. But you know what? He wants a short-term contract, maybe a two-year plus a third-year option. Now, he wants $40 million per year. But the Dodgers, because of all the money they've cleared and what more money they might get, they could afford a $40 million Cy Young Award winner for a year or two. They're not going to go five years, I don't think, for any pitcher, regardless of who he is. So that's out there. Uh, Bogart's name has has been mentioned at, at Dodger Stadium. Carlos Correa's got 12 offers. Where's he going to go? Is it a payday to go somewhere else? Minnesota's trying hard to keep him. Or is he going to become the Dodgers shortstop? So there's a lot of moving parts there that I think you're going to see the Dodgers start to act on. But the big storyline, John, the amount of money they've got in their checking account to use for pitching. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. They got a ton. Now, the Trevor Bauer situation to me is interesting. Is there a way that the Dodgers can wiggle out of that contract because of some moral clause, some kind of a violation? Or do they just have to wait for the contract to expire? That's the question they're waiting to determine. That's why Bauer has appealed, saying I should not be suspended any longer. If he's not suspended any longer, then his contract kicks back into gear, whatever's left in that contract, which is $32 million for the final year. Mm-hmm. Then the Dodgers' question is, do you want this guy back? representing your wearing that logo wearing playing for your team or you're going to cut them loose but then there's a 32 million dollar deal there that the Dodgers would be on the hook for because that's a guaranteed contract I don't know about the morals clause uh, there's been a lot of insinuation do you want this guy representing Dodger baseball so but the decision from the the three member panel I'm led to believe could come as early as this coming week at the winter baseball meeting. So we'll get much better definition as to do the Dodgers have more money in their checking account. Third team in Southern California. Let's talk about the Angels. Uh, They've done a very different job. They were the first team to sign a free agent when this whole sucker started. And they got Tyler Anderson, who came from the Los Angeles Dodgers. Then they made the trade. And this, to me, was a big surprise. They traded for Gio Urshela, the third baseman of the Minnesota Twins. This guy's a 275 career hitter. With something like 128 home runs, the guy can swing the stick and play decent. He can play third. He can play shortstop where he first came up with the Yankees. I was surprised the Yankees traded him in Minnesota to begin with. And then they made the trade uh, last week to get Hunter Renfro, the former Padre number one pick, who's who's gone from San Diego to Tampa to Atlanta to uh, Milwaukee. But the thing about Renfro, although he's not hit for big average, he is hitting, and he's hitting home runs, and he's got a cannon for an arm, and he can play both corner uh, outfield positions. So that's interesting that Hunter Renfro might, might become a real integral part to give them another bat like Ursula. And, you know, lost in all the arguments that we've had about Angel Baseball, they don't have enough pitching, there's no help for Shohei Otani. They hit 233 as a team last year. I didn't realize that till last week. They were just anemic. Now you go get... A home run bat like Ursula, who hits for average, and if Renfro hits 250, which is his career mark, if he hits 250, hits 25 home runs, that's an accomplished major league player to put in your lineup. So you you could have that left fielder, that shortstop, with Trout, Otani, Rendon, and their first baseman from last year. So. All of a sudden, the Angels might look like a very, very different team. I'd sure like to see them go get another pitcher, but I don't think they've got much budget money left. Yeah, it's it's nice to see them making these kinds of moves. And we talked about Renfo, first-class guy, loved him in San Diego, happy he's back here in, in, in Southern California. But it used to be that the Angels had all the hitting. At least that's what we used to think with Renfro, not Renfro, with um, Rendon and with Trout and with Otani. And now suddenly the hitting is in the tank, and they, they they seem to like they always needed pitching, but they aren't really. I mean, they got Tyler Anderson, but they, it seems like they need more arms too. So they've got a lot of holes, but at least they're starting to fill them. Well, the, the thing that's killed them in the last two years is the injuries. Whether it's Otani coming off the oboe surgery, what's a chronic calf problem, a sideline trout for virtually a whole year, or the back-to-back injuries Rendon has had. Now all these guys are going to be healthy, and you're going to add Urshela, you're going to add Renfro. Maybe you got enough bats to complement the front of that pitching rotation. Shall be interesting. Where do we go next? Well, I mean, it's, it's been a kind of a sad day in yeah. sports. I mean, covering a number of different some baseball and football news. Um, let, let's, let's start off with on, on football. I mean, the passing of legendary Chargers quarterback John Hadle. I grew up as a kid on eastern Long Island. I was an AFL fan. 
Back in the day when the American Football League started, and I was really young, I used to watch the Chargers because their games were always the late game on the AFL TV network on ABC. And I'd see palm trees and sunshine. I'd see old Balboa Stadium. You know, and I looked out to my window in Long Island, and there was six inches of snow, and it was 21 degrees. And so I'm watching this. I never thought I'd become the voice of the Chargers. Lucky me. But that guy, that was the first of the group of great quarterbacks that have worn the lightning bolt. Hadel was the first one with Sid Gilman. Then obviously Dan Fouts and Eric Coriel, Philip Rivers and Marty Ball, Marty Schottenheimer. But he was part of a group of what I call gunslingers. This might be a little bit before your time. The old <laughs> AFL mm-hmm. had legendary throwers. George Blanda came from the NFL, old Chicago Bear. He played for the Houston Oilers, and he was dynamic throwing the football all over the parking lot. You had the mad bomber, Daryl LaMonica. He came from Buffalo. He was with the Raiders. I mean, he threw something like 78 touchdowns in his first three years in the AFL. Uh, Frankie Trapuca, Denver Broncos. He was the thing that made their franchise go. He came from the Canadian Football League. So there was just a collective group of quarterbacks every Sunday that would throw for 420 yards or the occasional 500-yard game. And John Hadle was part of that collective group. Uh, He led them. We've only had one championship with a football team here, 1963 Chargers AFL champions. He led them to the finals two other times. He's in the Chargers Hall of Fame, had a really good career here, then went to L.A., finished his career with the Rams, and became a head coach at his alma mater, Kansas University. What a gentleman. He passed away at age 82. But I'll tell you what, everybody talks about the AFL Chargers and rightfully so the Hall of Famer Lance Allworth. And rightfully so, the running back, Paul Lowe. And rightfully so, the tight end, Dave Kachurik. You had to have somebody to get the ball to him, and it was that guy. He was a really, really good quarterback in a very different era in the AFL. Any memories of the American Football League? Does that predate you? Well, it does a bit. I mean, I, I, I was just starting to follow football when I was you know, in the early 70s, when I was a youngster. But I remember the Raiders had LaMonica then. This is before Stabler. And, um, and George Blanda was the kicker. Yeah. And and then I remember they said that, yeah, Blanda was the backup quarterback and he was this old guy. He was like in his late 40s. And I was like, how in the heck is this guy a former a backup quarterback? But he had that history. Um, it's interesting, too, with John Hadle, every story I've heard about him, a first class guy. But you go and look at the photos, those old school AFL photos from the 60s. And the quarterback has just the single bar across the helmet. It's just it's almost it's one step removed from the leather helmets, <laughs> you know, from back in the day. So um, a passing of a great charger, a great charger quarterback that brought probably the only major sports uh, championship um, to San Diego in 1963. Um, yeah, we're just we're losing some of the greats. Yeah, well, he was paired with Sid Gilman, who was a mad scientist. And you ask people about Sid Gilman and what he brought to football. Sid Gilman preceded Don Coriel, and they both both changed the game. But he was a nice gentleman. Now let's talk about the other guy who passed away. There are about a million stories about this guy. Gaylord Perry, legendary pitcher, 314 career wins, uh, 22 years in the major leagues. Gaylord Perry, Hall of Famer, even though he threw spitballs. But they could never prove that he threw spitballs. I'll tell you a funny story. So, first of all, Gaylord Gaylord pitched for 10 years um, uh, with one club, the Giants. 
pitched for four years with Texas. He pitched for four years with the Indians. He pitched for the Yankees. When he pitched in Cleveland, when I got to Cleveland, Billy Martin was a Yankee manager. Billy Martin would go crazy. Gaylord Perry was scuffing the ball. Gaylord Perry was putting some substance on the ball. I was at a game in Cleveland where Billy Martin went to the umpire four different times. I was in the press box. I said, how long are they going to tolerate this to ask the umpire to go out and check Gaylord Perry? And they would they would do his hands, his wrists, inside his jersey, his neck, his ears, his hat, his glove. They couldn't find what he was doing, but he kept getting guys out. Later that season, they're in Yankee Stadium. Indians, Yankees, Gaylord's pitching again. Billy Martin is going crazy. And all of a sudden, in the dugout, in the first inning, there's a Doberman pincer on a leash. And the TV guys are, really? What is this? (laughs) Billy Martin comes out and stands on the top step of the dugout with a dog with a leash. And the umpire's coming out. Asking Billy, what are you doing? Billy says, this dog has been trained to sniff out illegal substances. I want the dog to have the ability to sniff to see if there's any Vaseline anywhere on Gaylord Perry's body. The umpires would not do it. Gaylord Perry found out about it. He told the umpire, if that dog comes out to the mound, I'll shoot him. It was great. (laughs) And Billy Martin just went crazy. Gaylord was so good. He wrote a book after he retired that, yeah, he loaded the ball, but he never detailed how he did it, how he hid the Vaseline or whatever he was using. He was finally asked at his Hall of Fame enshrinement, what was the best pitch he ever threw? And the, the guy asking him wanted to know, you know, from your repertoire of all the things you threw it, he said best pitch ever threw is a strike. (laughs) He didn't detail anything about how he did what he did. I interviewed him a couple of times. Oh, he was great. Passed away at the age of 84 in his home in North Carolina. Just, just revered. Funniest thing is he had a younger brother, Jim Perry. Mm -hmm. Jim was a bonus baby pitcher with the Cleveland Indians and went to Minnesota. And Gaylord in Cleveland pitched again Jim in Minnesota. And I'll guarantee you that Gaylord was loading the ball. Jim was doing it legally. But... It seemed that Gaylord Perry, um, he, he it, it was not so much that he threw the spitball, but it was the possibility that the spitball was there. And even if he wasn't throwing it, people thought he was. So it was like this mind game that he had been able to manipulate the other team. But yeah, what a great pitcher. Um, played for a lot of teams. I've seen him in some of those senior games with the jersey with like eight different logos yeah. on the front of his jersey. Um, but I still have his baseball card from when he played for the Giants in the 60s. Um, but the stories you just brought up, I mean, I'm, immediately I'm thinking Billy Martin and the dog. It reminds me of George Brett and the Pine Tar incident where he goes ballistic on the other team. And uh, and checking Gaylord Perry, kind of like how they check Joe Musgrove, right, behind the ears. Um, but this guy is a legit Hall of Famer. <laughs> he is a baseball legend. Um, we were blessed to have him here in San Diego, won a Cy Young for the Padres. Won 21 games one year. He was only here two seasons, but... He was excellent. And gray hair while he was doing it. I mean, you see some of those pictures, those pictures of the picture. So, um, yeah, a sad day. You know, Hadel, uh, Gaylord Perry, um, tough day or tough week in sports. But um, so it goes. We lost two of our icons. Okay, before we start, uh, just remind everybody how they can join us with the Fans Forum. And then secondly, how do they subscribe so they'll be able to get the alerts when we put stuff on our, our, our podcast website virtually every day of the week? 
Yeah, so um, with Fans Forum, we're going to start that pretty quick here. So there's a, you still have a chance to type in a question, a comment, a hot take for, for Hacksaw on, your, on the Facebook or on the YouTube live stream. We'll see you here, and we'll get you involved in the Fans Forum. Uh, please also subscribe to the podcast. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your audio-only podcast. You can subscribe on YouTube. Um, just click on the subscribe button and the bell, get the alert. And, and also, you know, follow Hacksaw on Facebook on Twitter. All the episodes are posted there and all the other great things you're posting on Twitter, the polls and everything else. So it's good stuff. Okay, let's get started. Have we got anybody who wants to participate in this fans forum here on our Thursday? Yeah, so here we go. This is uh, from the San Diego Sports Talk channel. I'm so sad that Gaylord Perry passed away and he'll always stay a legend. Oh, definitely so. And John, you made an interesting point that the batter's they feared he was throwing spitballs and was loading it because his balls would come in and dip. And and then the batters started to get psyched out in the box. They were thinking so much about, exactly. is this ball going to dip or am I going to face a normal splitter or what am I get? The batters got all psyched out by the guy. But what a unique personality. One of the more diverse guys. He was an intellect. He was kind of a mad scientist as a pitcher. And then he cheated. But, they, I mean, today's modern day, and we'll talk about this next week, today's modern day question is, well, gee, if Gaylord Perry admitted he threw spitters and he cheated, he was in the Hall, Hall of Fame. Does that make him different than the other cheaters that are trying to get back on the Hall of Fame ballot? Another topic for another day, but Gaylord the Great. Well, I just have another great story about him is that when he played for the Giants in the 60s, you know, the, and the batters were hitting, and I guess it was like before the game, it was batting practice, and he's out there flailing. The guy couldn't hit. And Alvin Dark was the manager, and he made the comment. He goes, a man's going to be on the moon, you know, before Gaylord Perry can hit a home run. And sure enough, on that day, what was it, July 20th, 1969, when Apollo 11 landed, um, it landed, and then 30 minutes later, Gaylord Perry hit his first home run. Anybody can walk into any one pitch once in their life in the major leagues, and Gaylord did. Like Bartolo Colon did. Exactly. uh, Unfortunately, here in in, uh, San Diego. So, uh, yeah, San Diego Sports Channel, thoughts on Gaylord Perry. We're covering that. Um, He goes on, I'm a big fan of the San Francisco Giants. I will buy a Gaylord Perry jersey to remember how great of a person he is. I don't know if his number's been retired by San Francisco. Now, he did pitch 10 years there. And he won a bunch of had five twenty win seasons, and including one when he was really an old pitcher. Uh, I don't know if his number has been retired, but I bet baseball does something to salute Gaylord Perry, or at least maybe the Giants will, since he spent a decade there. I think it's fascinating, though, that he finished his career pitching for Billy Martin's club, the Yankees. Yeah, how about that, John? If if you could Google sometime. Gaylord Perry videos. I bet there's one with Billy Martin losing his mind in the dugout. I don't know if there's a video of him with the with the Doberman pitcher and the dog like in the to dugout. See that. Check that one out. Okay, here's here's another great question here, and this is uh, from Michael Duell. Love the show. Any update on Don Coryell's Hall of Fame candidacy? When they get to Super Bowl weekend, they will vote on the final lists. There's 28 left on the list. They will vote as to whether he gets in. My heart says, as a contributor to the game, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But understand this. He won only 100-plus games in the NFL. He never got to the Super Bowl. He only won 100 games in college football. That's 200 composite wins. I think people hold that against him. But I I know that... Diversified the different categories. Now they've got the contributor category. 
his mind was so great in terms of what he created offensively in X's and O's and the, the Fouts, Winslow, Charlie Joyner, J.J. West Chandler era. Uh, I think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I just don't know the fact that he only won 100 games and never, ever got to a Super Bowl game, whether that really works against him. But we'll find out uh, Super Bowl week uh, this coming year. Yeah, it seemed like his coaching tree was tremendous. All the people downstream um, – but, you know, so many San Diegans, you know, I always think of Nick Canepa, always writing articles longing for getting Coriel into the Hall of Fame. Regardless of the performance of the Chargers, it just seems as an innovative mind. Yep. He is deserving of being in the Hall of Fame because he changed the game and it led to Bill Walsh when he did with the Niners and everything else. Mm-hmm. But um, if you don't mind, just take a quick tangent. We're talking about Hall of Fame. And I noticed on your Twitter feed, you were talking about whether – uh, Bonds and, and uh, Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, we'll spin back now. This week, uh, coming week, baseball medians are here in downtown San Diego. On Sunday night, the new, what's it called, Contemporary Committee, it's just been formed, will meet and they will talk about eight names that are on the contemporary list. Those eight names are guys who have been on the Hall of Fame ballot that did not get in. You have a 10-year window to get in, John. Uh, they will they will review 10 guys included in that group are Fred McGriff, legendary Braves Padres home run hitter. Uh, they will review Oh, yeah, got me, got me here thinking. Um, who else is in that list? Kurt Schilling, legendary pitcher with a great postseason record. He never got into the Hall, but what he did with the Red Sox with the Phillies. But they're also going to have to review the controversy involving Bonds, Clemens, and Palmiro. And those guys spent ten years on the original Hall of Fame list. You got to get seventy-five percent of the vote to get in. They never got there. They got to highest they got was the final year at sixty-five percent. So they fell off the ballot. Now, because they've served that ten-year window, didn't get in, their name drops down to the next ballot. And the the burning question is: This committee is very different. Uh, the original Hall of Fame committee that votes on everybody. Those are members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. They have the vote. This committee is made up of seven Hall of Famers, led by Ryan Sandberg, Jack Morris, Frank Thomas. Only seven. Well, seven Hall of Famers, okay. six executives, mm. old-time baseball executives, and I think two members from the Baseball Writers Association. You know, I, I think it's hard for Ryan Sandberg, who preached integrity of the game— And so did these other guys to look at Clemens and Bonds, despite the gaudy statistics and the fact that those guys got dragged into the middle of the Balco lawsuit, the Mitchell report, etc. I think it's hard for the Hall of Famers who did it and did it cleanly to look and say, we should admit these guys based on statistics, but most everybody's of the opinion they cheated for a long period of time. We'll find out because they'll announce, I think, by the end of next week, at the end of the winter meetings, their decision. going to be a tough call because what you've got are seven former Hall of Fame players are on that committee. And those guys all got in based on their credentials because they were clean. They earned it. They deserved it. And there's still a raging debate 
do those guys, Bonds and Clemens, deserve to get in? We'll be arguing about this topic probably next week. (laughs) Okay, very good. Hey, listen, we thank you for joining us on our regular Thursday podcast. We always put a lot of topics on the table. Uh, I'll invite you to check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Invite you, too, to subscribe so you'll get the alerts when we put stuff on every week. Uh, during the course of the of the uh, calendar year, and then tweet, text, email, and send out information. Alert all your friends, all your followers, about what we're doing. On behalf of John Riley, this is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Thanks for being with us. Have yourself a great sports weekend. Join us again for Hacksaw's headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. San Diego. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.